Okay, so I guess we should start at the beginning, you know, like a episode of Jessica Jones. <laughs> um, my name is Michael Hargrove, and this is my life outside of the margins. And so when I say start at the beginning, um, I kind of want to explain that phrase, uh, life outside of the margins, a little bit better, because... It has a lot to do, it carries a lot of heavy meaning for me with my identity being kind of a little bit of everything, except two things at once and then nothing at the same time, depending on who you ask. So, I guess I should start by just sort of explaining, like, In simple terms, like, if you were to think of, like, a sheet of paper, and if it's wide-ruled, college-ruled, printer paper, you know the gist. You know what a piece of paper looks like. If you can imagine what that looks like on a desk, laid flat out in front of you, and you start to write, and you, you have, like, half the page filled, and then you realize, oh, hey, I, you know, I filled, I didn't fill in the margins, you know, everything is orderly, everything is kept and clear and good and organized, and well, that's because we have rules, we have structure and organization, syntax, grammar, things like that in order for us to understand, you know, the words that are written on the page. We have those rules, and those rules are often written on pieces of paper, too. So, it makes sense that, you know, we have the margins and we understand what they are and their purpose. And so it makes sense, you know, that in our own syntax, we have the term marginalized that we end up using to describe people who have historically been less privileged have been downtrodden, brutalized, and had a whole bunch of blood and injustice just that is what's filling those margins. If I were to go back to my paper analogy, injustice, and blood, and pain, and so it makes sense that, you know, what would one consider probably an insult, you know, oh, it's just blank, just blank space, but no, that blank space, it has a purpose, we have a purpose, we serve to give an example to society of what you know, what work still needs to be done. Because you can use the entire page. You don't have to subscribe to those rules. You can extend your words out. You can extend your privilege out to others. And so, 
when I say starting at the beginning and explaining that analogy, I really do feel like I exist on the outside of that because there's the space on the page, there's the margins, and then there's everything else because there are things that aren't ever going to be ever to be fitting on that page. I can't fit on the page. So let me start and sort of explain why I feel that way. And that really starts with my family that I adore. Absolutely. I should really preface this by saying I absolutely adore and love unconditionally my entire family with whatever I have been through um, and the lessons I have learned for the life I have lived. I have learned to appreciate everything and everyone, including my family. So that's the preface to this because sometimes when I talk about them, it, people take it as unkindness or as, oh, you shouldn't say that. And I just say, well, you have the privilege of of having decent relationships with your family. I'm the type of person who will admit I don't have the best relationship with my family. I am not that close. Uh, we are not that close, but that still doesn't mean anything to me with the way I was raised and by the people I was raised. And so let me start by saying... When I was born, I was born in the thicket. Um, my mother is of Puerto Rican descent. And in her house, she was the youngest girl, the second youngest child of six, um, also considered the dark-skinned one of the three girls. Um, even though all of them were light-skinned because my grandmother was a white Puerto Rican and now my grandparents were born in the 30s and they were born on the island. And so when you were born in Puerto Rico, uh, on your birth certificate, you were labeled as either black or white, depending on what skin color you came out as and what were the skin colors of your parents. So my grandfather was born to black Puerto Ricans, and he was a dark-skinned Puerto Rican. So he was, on his birth certificate, he is black. On my grandmother's, she is white, because she was a light-skinned Puerto Rican. She got confused for a Spaniard all the time, but she was Puerto Rican through and through. <laughs> oh, so Puerto Rican. Um, gosh, bless her heart. May she rest in peace. Um, and... When it came to, you know, my mother growing up, you know, spick was one of the words that, if I were to use 21st century terms, triggered uh, her because there was still lots of hate going around. So she was also the type of person She's now not anymore. She's she's very chillaxed, as one would say. But she 
growing up, my mom was essentially the type of girl who, uh, if you're familiar with Archie Comics, she would have been a Betty. Because as a American girl sweetheart she was, she would also still get in your face if she felt like you were in the wrong. And she was unapologetic about it. And she was also unapologetic about how smart she was. My mother was intelligent. And she knew it. She went to a school that had just opened its doors to girls for the first time ever. She was one of the first girls to ever go to this school, high school because she had refused to go to Catholic school and continue in her Catholic education because my entire my entire mother's side of the family had been raised Catholic gone to Catholic school throughout their entire education except for my mother so she was immensely proud of that she was immensely proud of getting her education and she never really struggled financially until, of course, 18 year came around. She was pregnant with my brother and, you know, going to school at the same time took her five and a half years to finish college, but she did it and she got her BS in business. Um, and so I think that's probably where I get a lot of my gusto from. A lot of my fighting spirit, especially from my grandparents, who fought a lot of battles. Um, they owned several businesses, several buildings over several years. So it wasn't like they were low income, but they were definitely working class and middle class. Um, and when it came to my dad's side, that's really where I get, I think, my sensibilities in family and love because my dad, may not so listen to was just so, so full of love and so full of. I know this is cliche to say because everyone says it about at least someone they know. But if you were in need of the shirt off of his back, he would give it to you, the $5 in his pocket, and say, be on your way. Go do something great. Because he was that type of person to give you that chance, even if you were a complete stranger. He had that much love for people. And so, uh, um, he definitely is where I get my sense of family and extended family and selected family because he was a gangbanger. <laughs> There's no other way to put it. He was in a gang and not like the gangs of today. This was the 70s. This is when gangs, you know, had actual respect and were more about, you know, brotherhood and family they were basically street fraternities and so they stayed throughout his life i remember his wake and man they all came through from everywhere and people i hadn't seen in years 
and I just felt, oh, I could still feel him, and I still feel him to this day right now, and I miss him so much, but, um, the lessons he taught me, and how to love stay with me every day, it's, uh, uh, um, in the 70s, and that's when me and my mom were on and off constantly, um, that's really what I describe as his bum things, mostly because of the fact that he was constantly homeless, and I say this without shame, um, because I've also experienced housing insecurity myself, uh, for almost all of my adult life, and I'm 24 currently, um, but I guess that's the life of a student that I signed up for, but, um, I digress. Going back to my dad, he spent a lot of his teenage years sleeping in parks, sleeping in cars, or at his, um, his brother's houses. When I say brothers, I mean his gang friends, but those were his brothers. And he did have brothers. He had two, um, uh, a younger brother and an older brother, and his older brother, Michael, who I'm named after, uh, died of AIDS. In 1995, nine months before I was born, so um, uh, that goes into a whole slew of my other personal beliefs of um, whether or not ancestral friendships and bonds can, you know, transcend lifetimes. And I'm just I'm one of those people that do believe in that, but that's a digression. Um, back to my main point is. He, um, he loved his brothers, he loved his biological brothers, and his biological sister, my auntie. Um, he loved his sister-in-laws, he loved his nieces, he loved his nephews, he loved my brother, he loved my sister, he loved me, and I can still feel it. And he loved his, his brothers, so... When, and I, I guess this is where I can tie it back to his parents and his upbringing because, um, whereas his grandmother was also a big force in his life, his mother was also a big force in my life up until she died, um, as well as her husband, who was the only grandfather I ever knew, my baba. Um, Charles Gray, uh, and, like, he was the first person who taught me how to use a computer, and he had these old-fashioned train sets he used to let me play with all the time, and I remember uh, Mama Tamasuma, she would always be She would always be cooking something, she would always be burning some incense, and she'd always be talking to the ancestors, and that's uh, another point I want to emphasize in my sort of spiritual background is semi-influenced by her, um, because they, in the 70s when my dad was going through his bum phase, 
um, they were raising um, my aunt. Um, um, in the aerobic traditions, which is um, uh, their practice came out of Cuba. Uh, so uh, essentially, they went through while my dad was going through his mom phase, my grandparents and my aunt were going through their pan Africanism phase that never ended. My aunt is still in, um, I feel like I'm going to say it's wrong, but I'm uh, a priestess of the uh, Orsha? Orshans? Uh, I feel like I'm going to say that wrong. But she, you know, she still practices. Uh, she also does tarot reading. Shout out Mama Lewa on Facebook. Go look it up. Um, but um, that's always really been a big part of my upbringing was, you know, trying to understand other people's systems of beliefs. Because as part of my mother's upbringing, she was just like, oh, that's witchcraft and voodoo. And I'm just like, there doesn't seem to be any type of pointy hats around here. But then again, my, I was a child, so I was only really influenced by what I saw white people doing on TV, which was pointing hats and broomsticks. Um, so, um, again, this really only really emphasizes my point. Like, I'm all on the out. I've always been on the outside of the margins, and I think my entire family has. Because I, I really don't know anybody who 100% fits on those margins. Because when you think of those margins, you don't understand the intersectionality that goes into it. And I know a lot of people have only really been recently understanding the thing that is intersectionality. And really only referring to it to feminism. But it really, really encompasses a lot of other identities when you think about it. Because... You know, I am a feminist. I believe in equal rights for all genders, all identities, um, whether you're a cisgender, transgender, or non-binary, uh, or gender fluid, or you fall somewhere under the LGBTQIA flag uh, and community. It's For me, it's always really just been about you know, people fall under different categories all the time. You don't just walk out of the world gay. You don't walk out into the world straight. You also have German ancestry, African ancestry, people from Cuba. You were born from enslaved African Americans. Some people were born from... Native Americans and who somehow survived the genocide that was colonialism. And when um, we talk about, you know, intersectionality and intersectional identity as well, 
you've got you know your sexual orientation your gender identity your ethnic background your national origin which isn't always the same it's almost all never the same a lot of people can keep on forgetting that a lot of people aren't educated on that because we keep on thinking oh these margins are here for a reason everything has to be organized within these margins and well sometimes you have to think outside of them because not everything can fit on the page. And so another capsule of my identity is I am straight Chicago. Like this is, this is, this is my home. This is my city. This is my blood. This is my family. I am Chicago. (laughs) And so, um, like when I think about my upbringing, I think about you know, yes, there's violence, yes, there's drug abuse. I come from a family of addictive personalities, and that has its own state of fears. I also come from a family of mental disorders and slews of cancers and diabetes. But you know what? I also come from a family who knows how to struggle and struggle well together and struggle in love. So I think my first real struggle was surviving school because as smart as I was, I was incredibly shy. In kindergarten, you had to pull out my teeth in order to get me to participate and talk in class. I would tell my friends, hey, raise your hand and I'll tell you the answer because I'm not telling, I'm not talking in front of everybody. I'm not doing that, no, the answer is full, okay. Night, put your hand down. (laughs) Um, And that's how I spent like the first three years of my education and What's funny is I really always, I wanted to go to school. Like I forced myself to be potty trained early so that I could get into school because I wanted to be where my sister was going. So I always follow after my sister because she's six years older than me. So she was the only other sibling in the house because my brother was 16 years older than me. And by the time I was three, he had joined the army, which terrified me. Um, because in my three-year-old brain, I was like, well, isn't that the place you go to die? And that was, that is where my three-year-old brain went. So I was not happy at all at his going away party. Um, But thankfully he was back (laughs) two years later anyway, but, and I was thankful for that and I'm still thankful for that. Um, I love my brother, but uh, back to why I was having such a hard time at school was mostly because I was terrified of judgment. I was terrified of, you know, being told to shut up. I was terrified of being wrong and making mistakes. And at that early of an age, I'm like, that's when you're supposed to make mistakes. And now I know that, but at that early of an age, I had no one to tell me that. I had no one to understand what was going on in my mind because I I was so closed off. 
I was absolutely terrified of what other people thought of me. Um, Like, not even Halloween could get me out of my shell. I would come to school with my costume ready to go on whenever we were able to put them on finally, but I was absolutely terrified of speaking up and showing off and um, even though literally every report card was like, oh, he's doing really well in all of his test scores, but I really wish he would participate. I really wish he would speak up. And that really didn't happen and pick up until between third and fifth grade. I was finally opening up. I was finally feeling confident enough to speak out, make some mistakes. And that's when things just got worse for me because... Um, well, we had moved to Omaha for about a year and a half, so that's where I spent all of third grade and half of, all of fourth grade and half of fifth was Omaha. And when we came back and I was able to get into my old school, even though we had moved to the west side of the city instead of to Logan Square where we used to live, um, um, but the principal, she knew my family, she knew my brother, she knew my sister, because we all went there, and she knew my parents, so she was just like, you know what, fine, you're, you're in. Um, and she was literally like my first superhero, um, and it was sad, because we lost her a year later. Um... And that didn't make the bullying any easier. I was literally physically assaulted almost every day. Verbally assaulted and harassed. And on two different occasions, sexually assaulted. Uh, I was groped. And so, uh, and these were all by my peers. No adult ever said any negative word to me. Did was nothing but kind, but they couldn't do anything. <laughs> there was no proof. There were no protocols for any of this. This was early two thousands, <laughs> like, and then by late two thousands, when I finally graduated out of elementary school and was going into high school, I was like, "Sayonara, suckers! I'm never seeing any of you ever again. You've made my life a living hell." <laughs> um. And so, finally, got out of there, and when I went to high school, it was a breath of fresh air. So, like, like, I didn't even know what clean air was until I got to high school. And I know a lot of my high school friends probably would disagree, but when I got there, I'm like, nobody followed me from my old school. For all four years, I didn't know a single person from my old school. And it was amazing, Um, especially considering the high school I went to was Westinghouse, and the original building had been a candy factory that had been converted into a school, but they tore that down, and in 2009, they reopened a new campus, brand new field, brand new building, everything new, including the students because they didn't feel that 
starting with, you know, seniors, juniors, freshmen, sophomore. They just put in some freshmen, and we're like, we're going to build it up from there. And so I was part of the second class at Westinghouse College Prep, and it was the literally the land of milk and honey because there were so many opportunities to start things. We could start things because there wasn't anything. Yeah. It was a blank canvas. It was a fresh sheet of paper. And we could write in the margins. <laughs> and it was amazing. It felt so freeing. I did things that I would have never done. And if you would have told me to do them when I was in kindergarten, or hell, if you had told me the year before in eighth grade, oh, hey, you got to do this now, make a whole presentation in front of this class. I'm just like, oh, hell no. But I did those things. Hell, my junior year, I made it to semifinals as an individual poet in our youth poetry festival. And I was like, wow, I did that. And I did that by myself, even though I did start, disclaimer, I did start on my high school team. And, you know, we went through our first two bouts and we did our thing. It was awesome. It was amazing. I was so proud of us. I loved doing it. It was so much fun. And then, you know, I got told by one of my mentors, like, hey, they want you to perform as an individual at semifinals. I'm like, wait, what? Like, my poem wasn't that good. Come on now. Um, I just, it was, it was just one of the most phenomenal moments and that I will hold forever to my heart because that really cemented in my heart a couple of things. One, I am a writer. Two, I am a poet. And three, my heart is in the arts. And that is where I want to give most of my life and devotion to because I want to be able to educate people in the arts. I want to be able to tell kids, young people, young adults, adults, older people that, you know, hey, it is okay to be afraid and make mistakes even if you haven't made any this late or this early in your life. But you know what? You know, it's okay to play pretend still when you're an adult. It's okay to get up in front of people and say rhymes that, you know, express how you're feeling because you can't say it in any other words, but, you know, in metaphors and similes. And it's okay to do that in front of crowds because people are going to resonate with you and they're going to love you and they're... And you're just going to feel so powerful. I felt powerful when I was doing poetry slams and working on my performances and my performance pieces and writing those pieces and, you know, workshopping them and workshopping with other writers, workshopping their pieces, hearing their stories, working to polish their performances. And I thought that was so amazing, which is why I also did drama club in high school. I did theater. Um, I did theater for a couple years in college as well, 
I did an entire play where I had three sword fights and I wear glasses, had no contacts, and as it was a period piece, I had to do the entire show and the entire run with no glasses. That was insanity, but also one of the most fun experiences of my life, because it was, that show was really fun. <laughs> I mean, I got to play with a sword. Um, so on top of being a writer and poet and student and son and black man and white passing Puerto Rican, um, I'm also an actor. Um, so it's just like, Where does all of that supposed to fit on the margin? In the margins, you, you know, you can only put the bullet points. You know, that's what they're for, for editing. You know, editing out, oh, you, you can do this. Oh, this was really good. Or highlight, you know, annotations. You know, your annotations where you're supposed to put, you know, the check mark next to something that is really important or really exciting that you agree with or the star next to the really important and memorized information or the, you know, the question mark and the question where, you know, I don't really understand this. You know, those types of annotations, those questions. And I'm just like, well, well, where's the room for the rest of us? Where's the rest of the room for the rest of these that are important? See, I think this is why graffiti is a thing. <laughs> um... It's a, it's an expression, expressing what you can't on the page. And so, you know, it is, um, it's always really been an education for me. I feel like the only part of me that I've always felt confident in was my writing. Also, my bisexuality, in which I'm just like, I'm going to throw that out there, because I'm just like, that was probably the one thing I never really questioned. Um, because in, like, 6th, 7th grade, I had a crush on a girl and her boyfriend, because I thought they were both really cute. And I'm just like, huh. Oh, that's what this is. Okay. And then from then on, I never questioned it again. <laughs> um, I've had several people, no, not several, hundreds of people question me, like, are you sure... Are you sure you got one more than the other? I'm just like, I'm so positive that I don't have to prove anything to you. I don't even have to prove I'm a writer. And, like, writers go through writer's block. There's periods where I haven't written anything. There were years that I had never written anything. Uh, and so I was just like, but I'm still a writer. I write. I still write things down. I still, you know, on occasion come up with a line or two and, you know, save it to my phone, save it on a notebook piece of paper somewhere because that all, you know, I'll come back to it later. And I have multiple times. There have been pieces that I've written. Sometimes there will be like paragraphs and I'll be like, hey, this kind of goes with this. I can add this together, and then all of a sudden I have a two to three page piece paper um, poem. So it really comes down to
all of the key pieces of my intersectional identity where I fall into, you know, bisexual, black man, white passing, Puerto Rican, don't speak Spanish because my mom used it as, you know, her secret language with her friends. Yes, I just threw her on the bus, leave me alone. Um, and so it's, there's always some other facet of my identity that's not going to fit on anybody's piece of paper. It's not going to fit in anybody's margins. So it's always going to be on the outside. And that's where people don't really think to look a lot. And that's where I think my major sort of thesis for this long talk is we don't look at the outside enough. And that is why the thing that I'm most passionate about, which is education in the arts, ends up suffered the most because people suffer from their lack of education in it. I can understand people's arguments are just like, oh, why do I need that for? Why does, why does anyone need Shakespeare? Well, you don't need specifically Shakespeare. You can read literally anybody, anything. There are plenty of plays. There are plenty of books that you can turn into plays. There are plenty of black women playwrights that you can read and get excited about their work because, you know, they talk about their own experiences, experience other black women can relate to. You can you can do improv. That's where a lot of comedians start. And, you know, it's just this country doesn't appreciate the time and dedication it takes to create something that's more than just, you know, bureaucratic laws and policies because we don't think it necessary and yet we consume art every day. The paint that is currently on the wall next to you or the fabric design of the bus seat under you or the freaking advertisements, the commercials you listen to, watch, all of that takes art and somebody being creative and wanting to be creative. All of that consumes up your time and consumes up most of our time and we're just like, oh, that's nothing. But I'm just like, yes, that, no, it, it, it's, it's something. And we don't appreciate it. That's why we just push standardized testing and we want to test, test, test until, you know, our kids' brains pop out and realize that, oh, you know, everything I was, you know, forced to focus on 
wasn't really relevant to, you know, being a good person or being a good worker. That is a skill you really had to either learn on your own or have someone realize, hey, I can teach you trade skills right now, early on, so that you're ready to get out of here once you graduate. And that's something that's been really irksome to me is like we don't prepare kids for the outside world. We really don't. And so many older people really shame the education. I can't really say it's an industry because it's such a vital part of of everyday life. It's not just an industry like, you know, fashion is an industry or, you know, movies are an industry or, you know, music is an industry. But education, education is vital. And so many people take it for granted because of the fact that, you know, wow, we, I need to stop playing with this. Uh, little break thing that fell out of this wire. I need to play with that. Um, we really just keep on convincing ourselves that, you know, education is only one thing and it's only ever going to make, you know, it's only supposed to prepare people for the workforce. Well, that's what it is on paper. If you were to research it and look it up, it was only ever, public education was only enforced because it wanted to make sure people were prepared to join the workforce. And that was in the 20s. And it hasn't been up to date in ever, in ever, never, <laughs> because the workforce is always changing. They had mills, mines, textile mills. And then, of course, you know, child labor laws, kids had to go somewhere. So, okay, make sure the kids knew how to do this, knew how to count, knew how to do the basic things that they would need at a machine factory job or whatever major industry there was at the time. But now we have none of those industries. Factories are shut down. Mines are shut down. Because uh, we have several new industries clean energy, solar power industries, we have technological industries, we have computers now. And so there are dozens of new fields, and so kids today are learning early on how to use computers, how to use technology, and people are still like, eh, that's not that important. Learn how to use a real skill. Well, when they're making ten get over when they're making six zeros on a sh on a check don't tell them that the skills they learn early on are useless um, I'm saying that like 
I really don't know what child that you would get six zeros at. Hmm. Huh. I need to expand my own horizons, maybe, but I think really when it comes down to what I am most passionate about and what I identify as is education, I want to be an educator. And I feel like I am an educator. Um and the bits that, you know, I'm always, you know, trying to introduce people to different things that I'm interested in. I'm interested in comic books. I would love to write comic books one day. Um, I plenty, plenty of material to draw from. Trust me. Um, with that being said, I think also, like, there, there's some... Some line that has to be like drawn in the sand. Or maybe not a line. Maybe nothing needs to be drawn in the sand. Eh, I don't know. What I do know is that I can still see that sheet of paper on this desk. Imaginary sheet of paper on an imaginary desk in front of me. And I already feel like, oh, if anything's getting written on written on it, you know, I know where the margins are going to be. I know what, if anyone's going to edit this, and it's probably going to be me. I know what to fill in those margins. But then I'm probably going to need at least another sheet of paper to, you know, make other notes. But then, what about the rest of the space? The desk is empty. What am I going to fill it with? And that's really why I feel like I, I have to exist on the outside. Because if I just leave the desk empty, well, then there's no room for my Storm action figures and Funko Pops. Or my Dark Phoenix glow-in-the-dark Funko Pops. Or any of my Steven Universe merchandise. Why leave the desk empty? Like, also, where's my computer? <laughs> Let me put the computer on the desk. Why am I only writing on paper? Like, I can easily write it out and then type it out. And then that way, I can make the notes on the rest of the paper and keep on typing. Or if I'm using Google Docs, which some people might not know this, you can make notes and annotations on Google Docs. And they appear as post-it notes on the sides when you click on them. Great. Great. Isn't technology great? Um, but yeah, this is where, this is, this is my life. This is where I exist. I'm not just marginalized. I'm just outside of those margins. I I can't think of any other existence I've ever really felt, and I I can't relate to any other phrase. Honestly, I can't relate to any other phrase. I mean, I am a bisexual man of color in Chicago of Puerto Rican and African American descent from a low-income upbringing 
um, facing housing instability at least twice in my life. And still in school currently, still working my ass off towards a degree, still working my ass off at work at a job that I really hate while I'm trying to get a new one. But if I were to try and sum up the whole point of this long talk, it's really that I think Identity is complicated, it is nuanced, and honestly, it's an education. And you really should be thinking about that a lot more in terms of an education, because we think way too simplistically about it. And I get that, you know, some people just won't be able to get to that point. Some people won't even need to get to that point because they'll just have the confidence and be like, I know who I am. I don't need to worry about anything else. I know what I need to do. And that's me right now. I know who I am. I know what I need to do. That's take care of me. Take care of my man. Take care of my mom. Take care of my nieces who I adore. And just take it one day at a time on the outside. So, if I was going to leave it at one more important thought, I think that probably would be to not let anyone tell you who you are or tell you you're just one thing because you're everything. So, probably the only thing you're missing is a crown. Because everybody around here is a king and a queen. So, let's, let's leave it at that. Go do you, queen. <laughs>